Hello and welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your sessions and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide. I'm Dr. Jeffrey Smith. That's Jeffrey with an E-R-Y. I'm a psychiatrist and associate professor of psychiatry at New York Medical College, and we're here to relieve some of your anxiety about being a therapist. I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice, experiencing a moderate amount of anxiety about being a therapist. Today we're going to introduce you to a few of the most helpful concepts to clarify the work we do. This podcast is a companion to part one of chapter four in the book. We decided to divide chapter four in two parts to make the podcast be of a digestible length. Just before we started recording this morning, we were talking about what is one of the first questions that we have to ask ourselves during the session. You know, that's extremely important. There are, there are three key questions that come up all the time in therapy. One is, what's the dysfunctional pattern that you're seeing that's causing trouble for this person? And the second one is, what's the emotion that that dysfunctional pattern is designed to avoid? And the third one is, what kind of emotional work is going to need to be done in order to resolve it? So this, in this chapter, we're going to focus primarily on the first question, what is the dysfunctional pattern? And we're going to talk about kind of the range of dysfunctional patterns, because the observation that dysfunctional patterns are really the core of what psychotherapy is all about is what makes it kind of easy to have one concept that covers all of the incredible variety of different sorts of problems that we see as we as we practice. So in this in this chapter 4 you describe these entrenched dysfunctional patterns as being embodied by avoidance mechanisms an umbrella term really. Exactly. So avoidance mechanisms a couple of things in general about them First, if you think about, about the, the variety of them, the aspect that most makes them different is the fact that they're invented at different points in development. Early on, the, the very first avoidance patterns are the kinds of things that are described in the literature on attachment styles. Because attachment is something that babies learn very, very early in life. They learn how to connect with their caregiver. And, they, and when there are difficulties in making that connection, then that causes a lot of discomfort, a lot of, of painful feeling. And that triggers the, or that, that makes the, even the infant who's way, way years before having any words, the infant starts to learn ways to get away from uncomfortable feelings. The earlier the dysfunctional pattern, the more intense the feelings. Because what babies, when something goes wrong, when, when their tummy doesn't feel right, it's like the end of the world. And so when we see in adult emotions that look like, our emotional reactions that look like it's the end of the world, it's a pretty safe bet to say that's something that probably developed very, very early in life. Then later on, Avoidance mechanisms become more sophisticated, they become more verbal, they become more ideational. Uh, and then finally we get things like in, in adolescence, learning to use substances to 
avoid feelings. And that's a whole new realm of, of power. I call those power tools that adolescents have to avoid their feelings. So I think that the form, the kind of EDP that we see says more about the, the point in development when it first appeared or was invented than it does about the particular feeling that's been of being avoided. So it would really serve the new therapist to look in depth, in depth at uh, attachment theory, to understand the emotional developmental stages and be able to correlate them to the dysfunctional patterns expressed during adulthood. Uh, that, that's a good point. I, I'd have to say if there's one extra course I'd recommend that every therapist take, it would be, it would be uh, childhood development. It really gives you an appreciation for how the, how the mind evolves and, and how different kinds of avoidance patterns can be correlated with, with stages in development. And we'll see that because a little bit later in the podcast, we're going to give a catalog of different kinds of EDPs that we see in practice. Um, you state in Chapter 4 that an additional factor in shaping avoidance mechanisms in addition to age is the seriousness of the threat perceived by the child. Could, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, yes. If a threat is a life and death kind of thing, like children need emotional support, that's not a, an optional good feeling. That's something that's, that you have to have in order to survive, or at least, at least uh, a human instinct tells us that. And so when we see patterns that are related to something experienced as a life and death matter, those patterns are going to be more entrenched than others. Why is that? Because the instinctive mind is going to experience the possible loss of a defensive, of a protective pattern as, as potentially leaving, leaving the person open to a life and death threat. And so there, there are different things Put in place, remember layers of EDPs may be put in place to protect against change. So we can expect therapy to be harder, to be more wrenching for EDPs that relate to something that was a life and death threat. And for example, when, when early family life is more chaotic and more dangerous and more scary, uh, the damage to a person's life is likely to be worse and the therapy is going to be is going to be tougher and the feelings may be more intense and the resistance to change will be will be stronger on the other hand i don't want to leave out the kinds of problems that come from later developmental phases when thinking is more sophisticated those may be narrower in their focus thinking about Oedipus complexes and things like that are narrower in their focus, but Paul Simon said it the best of anybody, the nearer your destination, the more you're slip sliding away. And when you see somebody who's quite successful, but they never quite reach their, their most cherished goal, that's an indication that we're dealing with a more sophisticated kind of EDP. Okay. So a, a question that, that occurs to me, if the client experienced at a very young age some kind of trauma or, or difficult attachment or interrupted attachment, that client might not have any memory of the attachment problem or of the early trauma. 
And my question then is what role does memory serve in the therapy? How can we help our client access that memory? And just in general, what's the role of memory? That's, that's a really good question. And I want to step back a little bit. Uh, memory is kind of a key because when we're talking about patterns of thinking and emotion and behavior, those, those are patterns, as we've indicated, that come from some time in the past and they get reused in, in adulthood and that's when they're dysfunctional. So if patterns are being reused, they must be stored someplace. And it turns out in the last few decades, Eric Kandel did Nobel Prize work discovering that memory is encoded in synapses, that the strength of synapses is adjusted so that a group of synapses will fire at the same time. Those are called neural networks. And those are the containers for every kind of memory, whether it's, it's five plus six is 11, or it's a behavior pattern that has no verbal representation at all. They're all data as far as the brain is concerned and data is always held in, in neural networks. And one of the things we're going to see as we go along is that therapy changes those neural networks. So in a way we're not changing broken biology as I've mentioned before. We're not changing the brain's hardware. At least that's not our primary goal. We're changing the adjustment of synapses so that we can change information in, in the brain. And one of the forms of information then is nonverbal patterns. And those are the ones that we see that were initiated, that were first invented before words were available to, to a small child. And those are typically attachment issues and personality disorders. Uh, you, you mentioned briefly uh, that one important mechanism of memory is long-term potentiation or LTP. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. The way those synapses are adjusted, at least for long-term memory, is called long-term potentiation. Donald Hebb, back in the 40s, before the, the specifics were discovered, had the idea that uh, neurons that fire together wire together. In other words, if nerve impulses are going in a certain pathway, in a certain pattern, a few times, then those get adjusted to be more sensitive and then that creates a lasting memory. So that's ultimately how it happens and we'll see later on that they're actually, we now understand something of the mechanisms by which memories can be changed. Old connections can be, can be erased in effect. So could you give us a practical application of how uh, LTP works within the session and how we can uh, transform memories to uh, a healthier pattern of behavior? Okay, sure. You'll remember from the last podcast, we talked about how therapy is circular, that sometimes the first thing that we want to do is to work to detoxify a painful feeling. Yes. Once the feeling comes up to the surface as an affect, then then there are things we can do to make it no longer have the scariness that it that it once had. And then on the other side, sometimes we want to go in and advocate first to change a behavior pattern that's covering up an affect. And so when we change the behavior pattern, only then is the affect going to be accessible to, uh, to be able to work with. So, so when we have an affect, 
the way we help people with that is just by bringing it to the surface in a context of safety and connection because that's what allows those synapses to be changed and the association between a certain scary circumstance and the scary feeling gets broken. Well, if there's no longer a scary feeling attached to the circumstance, then the circumstance doesn't have its toxic feeling anymore. Let's say, let's say you have a traumatic memory of something bad that happened one time and you never want to even think of it because it's so scary. Well, once the feeling comes to the surface in a context of safety and connection, then in a matter of, of a very short time, that connection to the scariness gets broken. And, this, and when you come back to it later on, it no longer has the same kind of, of emotional... Charge. Uh, right. Uh-huh. And so, so that's how we heal feelings. I call it healing, but what we're really doing is we're changing some synapses, um, probably in the amygdala part of the, of the brain. On the other hand, changing behavior patterns is a much more complicated thing where first we need to have awareness and then we encourage people to, uh, to try a different behavior, to maybe let go of an old, of an old behavior pattern, and, and it maybe takes longer and some more practice. And as that happens, sometimes obviously, sometimes only here and there, affect comes to the surface and when it does, since the context of the therapy is one of safety and connection, those affects get healed as they, as they come up. So, so that's how we do it. Good, thank you. So continuing a little bit with, with memory, in chapter four you mention uh, procedural memory. What role does it play? So the best way to talk about procedural memory is to start with explicit memory, which is like like what's two plus two or what, who is the second president of the United States, that's the kind that you can say, hmm, let, let me try to remember that. That's, that's explicit memory. And then there's implicit or procedural memory, which is like riding a bicycle. It's like all of those patterns of behavior that just happen. They just come to us and we do it. And so most of the dysfunctional patterns that we that we see and that we work with in therapy are represented as, as procedural memory. But they're all contained in neural networks just the same because the brain doesn't care what kind of data it's working with, it's all stored in the same way. So learned patterns are stored in procedural memory and therapeutic efforts would uh, need to focus on making the patient aware of the pattern uh, of the dysfunctional pattern that is stored in the procedural memory of which they're not very conscious? Right. The EDP is an avo a pattern of avoidance. It's a pattern of thinking and behavior and feelings that are designed in the instinctive mind to get away from an emotion. And sometimes we work directly with the triggering emotion, at least as it comes to consciousness in the form of an affect, and sometimes we're working with the pattern of behavior, right? right? So the emotion triggers the behavior. When the emotion is accessible, we work with that and we try to disconnect it from whatever set it off in the first place. And when we're dealing with the, and then 
that triggers a behavior, the avoidant behavior. When the avoidant behavior is the thing that's more accessible, we work with changing the behavior. So then I, I imagine that uh, if the affect is, is stored in, in procedural memory and maybe not that accessible to the patient, it is not that accessible to the therapist either, it might behoove us then to look more carefully at the dysfunctional behaviors, which would lead us right into noticing the, dis the, the behaviors in the EDPs. That's exactly right. And, and I pointed out in the last podcast that the teaching of CBT generally ignores the emotion, but it's really there. That when in CBT, when you teach somebody a new pattern of thinking or a new pattern of behavior, and they change, that's going to uncover emotions. And, and that may only show up in the form of, let's say, the, the patient doesn't do their homework. And that may be where you, where you notice where if you're looking for it, you can see that there's an emotional reaction to the changes that are, that are coming out in the therapy. So the therapy doesn't talk about that, but it actually happens. And guess what? We still have a context of safety and connection and actually, research has shown that, that the, the therapeutic relationship has even more importance in the success rate of cognitive behavioral therapy than other therapies. Okay. You know, I, I have to say, Dr. Smith, that I found this chapter to be particularly helpful in helping me identify these dysfunctional behaviors. You. You list on pages 45 to 48 uh, a catalog of EDPs and dysfunctional behaviors that just help me wrap my mind around what it is I'm seeing exactly, and, and you indicate how to respond to them. And I, I was wondering if you would want to go through this list uh, with us and uh, with us, your audience, and with me. I'm thrilled to do that, and, and this is going to be a a brief introduction. There are 14 of them, and these 14 different kinds of EDPs are going to cover just about everything you're going to see in your, in your office. So that's kind of amazing to, to be able to say that everything that people bring to you for help with is, is going to be a pattern of avoidant, avoidance of some sort of uncomfortable emotion and that they all have that characteristic in common. So let's go ahead and we'll start with number one. Simple so, avoidance. Right, simple avoidance is, is when you're consciously aware, like somebody who has war trauma, for example, might be aware that there's a memory from the war that they just never want to even think about. And, and sometimes we see problems like uh, using drugs or, or, or drinking as a way of never having to get close to those awful memories from, the, uh, from wartime. So conscious avoidance is what I call simple avoidance. Uh, it just, I don't want to think about that. Okay, and that is just full voluntary control. Yes. All right. Nonverbal schemas. Okay, so then we go back to the earliest developmental phase, and those are those attachment patterns like avoidant attachment uh, or, or anxious attachment uh, and also the kinds of patterns that we see in people with the more severe personality disorders. Those come from very early. Can you give us an example? You state that they are more automatic, which makes sense if they started early, uh, but um, could you give us an example of 
how a nonverbal schema would present in the therapy room. Uh, sure. What comes to mind is, is working with a person who has a narcissistic personality disorder. And that's one of, the, one of the very toughest things to work with in therapy because those are people who have a hard time even admitting that they have any kind of problem. So just to, to paint the picture, a picture that the narcissistic person is somebody who as a two-year-old was never learned to lose battles gracefully. That two-year-old never got through a temper tantrum that, that he or she couldn't master in such a way as to avoid having to face the bad feeling of realizing that you're, um, that you can't do what you want to do, that it's, it's not going to be allowed, or that in some way you've lost a battle of will. And so what happens is if you never learn that it's okay to be less than perfect, it's okay to be on the losing end of something, then you always have to win no matter what. And so this is a nice example of something that that I didn't fully explain in the last two podcasts, which is how unconscious feeling can trigger an EDP, even though it's not in awareness, and yet it's only when it becomes conscious that we have a chance to do some healing. So for example, a person with a narcissistic personality disorder, if their unconscious mind, their instinctive mind detects a a wound to their self-esteem, they won't even be aware that anybody hurt their self-esteem. They won't be aware of feeling bad, but they will immediately automatically launch an attack. And the attack will be on whoever seems to be the source of the, of the pain or maybe just anybody who happens to be around. But the attack is then one of those, of those nonverbal schemas that when it's triggered, you, you have to hurt somebody. You have to put somebody down and make them feel bad. And so that's a nice example of a nonverbal schema. How do, we, how do we help with that? Well, it may take years for that uh, narcissistic person to be able to admit that they're less than perfect, that they actually do have some psychological pathology, and that it would be better to be aware of those kinds of attacks and not do them once you change that behavior pattern then you're going to begin to see some glimmerings of affect of i'm feeling i'm feeling bad i'm feeling bad about myself but it takes a long time for a narcissistic person to be able to experience that kind of affect and verbalize it in a way that allows it within the context of the therapeutic relationship that allows that affect to heal okay that was nonverbal schemas. Three, reenactment. How does that show up? So that's a really, a really interesting one. Uh, we often see that, that people sort of go back to the scene of the crime. They marry somebody like, like the parent that they had unfinished business with, or they form relationships uh, and, and seem to, to repeat things where I guess I'd say there's unfinished business. Freud called it the repetition compulsion. What's interesting is since it's, it comes from the non-conscious part of the mind, you never can know exactly what's driving. Why do people do that? And I've often asked the question, it's probably more than one reason. One of them is in the, 
vain hope that if you repeat the thing that this time it, you're going to get it right. Uh, this time there's going to be a different outcome and we know that doesn't work. Uh, sometimes it seems more like it's just a fascination with something that has never been resolved. So it's interesting that it's, it's a real demonstration of just of the fact that the, what's not conscious often just stays that way and we can indirectly form hypotheses about what's there but we don't really have a window into, into the unconscious mind. We just make, make guesses and when we see that the guesses help people to change, we know they're probably right. Well, so there's a lot of popular literature about reenactment. I had a patient once who had a father who was very cold and aloof and, uh, and who promised herself uh, when she entered early adulthood that she would find somebody who was warm and who would be the opposite of her father. And she did at a party meet a man who was very sociable and warm and generous and effusive. And as it turns out, as their relationship progressed, she found that he was so warm and so effusive that he had no time left for her, leaving her in the same state of, of abandonment, of emotional abandonment that her father had left her in. And she had consciously set out to meet the opposite of her father. And in what is almost cliche now, in a room full of 40 strangers, she honed in on the one person who would help her reenact this, um, this dysfunctional relationship. A lot of my patients ask me, why? Why have I, have I fallen into this trap one more time? And then, second part of my question is, um, you, you state that um, reenactment inevitably fails as an attempt to resolve the unfinished original business. And I'd like to know why. Why does it fail? Yeah, it, I call it radar. The, the unconscious mind is really, really good at pattern recognition and, and picks up things that, that you just you would never see on the surface. My, my question is, why yeah. doesn't it work? Yeah, why doesn't reenactment work to resolve uh, unfinished original business? Okay, since the original problem was unsolvable, and that's why it, it's unfinished business. So what the mind does is in order to recreate it as closely as possible to the real thing, you have to recreate a problem that's unsolvable. And sure enough, it turns out to be unsolvable in adulthood too. So that's, that's my best understanding of why this doesn't work, is because is the problems are ones that, that can't be solved. I'll give a, a quick example. A patient of mine found just that boyfriend who, who was, was the perfect guy, and he also had the, un, the impossible problem. He was a guy who really, really craved for closeness and consciously he wanted to have a relationship. He wanted to have a real connection with her. But the closer he got, the more frightened he was because he was afraid that if he, if he, if he was needy, then that would, would equate to vulnerability and he would surely be betrayed. And so as soon as closeness was a possibility, as soon as she said, yes, let's get closer, then he'd run the other way. And that was an example, and, and I think it would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, for him to overcome that fear of betrayal that comes up every time he gets close to what he really wants.
So then it seems to me that our task as therapists when uh, confronting with our patient the original unfinished business is to help them accept the fact that it will never be resolved. That's right. Uh, It makes me think of other people that I've worked with, uh, one in particular who had a lot of anger at her, her mother who wasn't very motherly and wasn't very nurturing, but the anger wasn't allowable and it had to be suppressed. And so in order to heal, I inherited all of those bad feelings because I'm the, I'm the doctor who's supposed to make everything better. And so she had to get extremely angry at me in a very real way. It had to be real angry affect in order for her to begin to realize that maybe I wasn't really the bad guy, that maybe it really came from a long time ago. When there began to be a separation between the feelings directed at me and knowing that they really belonged someplace else, only then could the, could the feeling begin to heal. Because, you know, as long as, as she was thinking that I was mistreating her, then, then it didn't heal, it just got her more angry. But when it was finally out in the surface and clear, clear what it was about, then we could go through that healing process with the, with the affect, because then it was a safe context and I was a good guy, even though she was feeling a lot of anger. So I guess this leads us right into item four, acting out. Sounds like your patient was acting out with you. Uh, well, that's, that's called acting in. <laughs> yeah. Acting <laughs> out is when you go out and you pick a fight with somebody uh, outside the therapy. For example, it's not uncommon for people as, as issues get stirred up in therapy for them to go and do something outside. I'm thinking of a, of a somebody I supervised whose patient was feeling uh, needs coming up within the therapy, which were very threatening to her. And so what did she do? Well, she went to the hospital emergency room and told them she was depressed and they gave her antidepressants. That was an acting out to get away from a feeling of increasing desire to receive something from her therapist instead of being able to talk about it to let the affect come out in the, in the sessions it was all taken outside the therapy. So you, you also state here in acting out, a person who attacks another may not actually experience the feeling of anger and will not be able to resolve it. Yeah, I always think that about, about people who are really um, destructive and hurtful is, is when, they, when they follow their impulses to hurt somebody, they're not really feeling an affect. They're just doing something. And, and it's kind of interesting because you see a very violent act and, and you'd imagine that, the, that there must be a really strong feeling going on there, but it's not. So that's not always the case, but it's something to be aware of that action isn't always accompanied by affect when it's one of those automatic reactions that's triggered by one of those core emotions that remains unconscious and, and it goes straight to the acting. So it's a useful thing to think of action is often a substitute for experiencing affect. Why? Because action makes affect go away. It makes feeling go away. That's why it's there. So number five, hidden agendas. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So uh, I think of of hidden agendas as being kind of on the border between verbal and nonverbal. An example might be somebody whose actions show that they feel like 
they have to be perfect in order to be lovable. Or somebody who is doing something to prove a point. Like for example, sometimes when patients act in ways that are totally self-defeating, you ask yourself, why is, why is that? Why is this person sabotaging their own, their own success? Well, one of the common reasons for that might be as, as what I call smoke signals, a way of signaling to the, the parent who is no longer there that, that they need help, that they need the parent to solve the problem and they don't feel capable of solve it, solving it themselves. And so, so exhibiting helplessness might be a way to send a signal like that. That's a hidden agenda. Another reason for self-sabotaging behavior, another kind of hidden agenda, might be to show who's the bad guy. Look what you did to me. Look what you, what you caused me to do or to be. And, and it's really more of a moral thing to get, to get the parental figure who again is, is the person isn't even aware that there might be a parental figure in this picture, but to get that parental figure to admit that they screwed up, that they did a bad job. Uh, that's, that's a pretty common reason for, for self-defeating behavior. Guilty quests, number six. Guilty quests is, is sort of one of my favorites because these are, these are things like the Oedipus complex. It's where the solution to the problem when, when you're five, uh, five-year-olds begin to be able to conceive of life as an arc, as something that has a long-range future. And that gives their instinctive mind tremendous power to solve problems. Because the solution to the problem right now, like let's say I'm not getting the love that I need right now as a five-year-old, the new solution is, well, someday I'm going to be, and then I'll be lovable. And so by putting the solution into the future, then it makes it easier for the five-year-old to get along in life more comfortably and more satisfactorily so you don't see the, the evidence that there's a problem because the solution is off there in the future. This is actually healthy in a lot of cases because this is one place where careers get invented. People begin to think, what am I going to do when I grow up? Well, a lot of that is a solution to whatever problems we're pressing at the time. But what if the solution is something that's prohibited? And that, that's what Freud discovered. That it, Let's say the solution for a little boy who's not feeling enough love is to have some closer physical contact with mom. Um, and and that five-year-old knows that you're not supposed to do that, that that's not supposed to be okay, but five-year-olds are pretty sensual kids. And so that desire gets shoved underground because it's not, it, there's already a conscience there that says, no, 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 you're not supposed to do that. And, and it disappears. But that might be the, the situation for when the five-year-old grows up and becomes a sexual young adult that might be the person whose sexuality is inhibited or directed in inappropriate ways. And, there's, and there might be self-sabotage. And so that's where the, the Paul Simon thing comes back again. The nearer your destination, the more you're slip sliding away. And the, the, the goal might be ambition. It might be something that the, that the child equated with, make, with being lovable enough. Uh, J. Paul Getty when he was the richest man in the world on his deathbed said, 
I would gladly have given all of my money in order to have one satisfactory marriage. So in a way, I mean, I understand why you would call it a guilty quest, but it sounds to me like the other side of that coin is also hope. That's right. Hope is extremely powerful. And, and that's what the five-year-old, because of being able to see into the future, discovers a source of hope. And, and again, that can be hope that produces tremendous achievement, but it also can be one of those situations where, where guilt causes that hope never to finally be consummated. Yes. Also, though, that projection into the future gives a term to the suffering and could help us develop forbearance. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. I can, in the future, I will not suffer like this mm -hmm. anymore. Right. But then it can turn sour if we, mm -hmm. if we start aiming our goal to something more dysfunctional, like the five-year-old who wants intimacy with his mother. Right. Well, well, that wanting intimacy with the mother is, is, is really okay. That can get transformed into healthy sexuality. But if it runs into trouble with the conscience, then, then you can have problems. So that's why guilty quests, the quest is, is, can be healthy, but the guilty part of it um, causes it to, be, to become a source of trouble. Thank you. Number seven, arrested development. Well, as much as we've been talking about patterns of behavior, one of the kinds of patterns that we haven't talked about is not doing anything. And very often, people don't develop in a certain, they don't develop skills or abilities because they've avoided a certain kind of situation. For example, again, sexuality. People who've been sexually abused early in life, one of the solutions is to become hypersexual, but another solution is to become non-sexual, is to avoid anything, having anything to do with sexuality. And so that whole part of the personality stays undeveloped. And so that might, that's another kind of entrenched dysfunctional pattern is a lack of skill and learning in some important area of functioning. And you state that often the premature loss of a parent causes some developmental arrest. Can you can you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure, that, that's kind of, a, kind of a, an easy, simple one once you realize it, that when you hear about a premature loss of, of a parent especially, just ask yourself, am I looking at a, at a, at a person of whatever age the, the parent died at, let's say it, it was age nine, am I looking at somebody whose emotional functioning or part of it is stuck at age nine? And the answer is probably going to come back yes. So then... I think the grand finale, number eight, addictions. Uh, yes, and, and I think the, the, so addictions are way, way high up on the developmental scale because they usually don't happen until, until the, the early teens. And the way to understand addictions is the instinctive mind gets switched over and starts to believe that using the substance is synonymous with survival of the species. And all of the power that's built into our, our brain to, to make us do the things that we're supposed to do in order to keep the human race around get turned in the interest of keeping the addiction alive. And th that's why addiction is so, is so powerful and so difficult to work with. So, so addiction is a situation where we almost always start with the behavior 
and we're not going to see what, what emotion avoidance might be behind it, what affect avoidance might be a part of it. And sometimes addiction is really driven by pleasure seeking, but I'd say more often what makes addiction really entrenched is that it's, it's also a way of avoiding some uh, painful or uncomfortable affect. And so if that's an automatic behavior, then uh, it has a lot in common with nonverbal schemas, doesn't it? It, it does. Absolutely. That's right. And what do we do with those things? We, we, we throw the kitchen sink at it. We do everything we can to try to help the person change that behavior and look for outside supports and so on. So this concludes today's podcast. Thank you for listening to the end. We hope it's been helpful to you, and we'd love you to visit Dr. Smith's website, www.howtherapyworks.com, where you can purchase the book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide, and find other articles for clients and therapists. Dr. Smith, would you like to add anything? Well, thank you for listening, and we'll, we'll be here for the next podcast. So bye for now. Goodbye. Goodbye.